0: Hello, Dr. Ricky Aronson, and welcome to another episode of Happy Healthy Ever After, a seriously humorous guide to heterosexual love, gender differences, and sex. Welcome to Happy Healthy Ever After. Today I'll be talking about gender stereotypes and how they relate to sexuality and sex. Let's start with libido. A great place to begin, because without sex drive, nobody would be interested in having sex or listening to this podcast. What about the gender stereotype that men are more interested in sex than women? Is this true? Well, I'd like to qualify this because men and women are both interested in sex, but on average, men have a higher libido, and also men and women do think about sex subtly differently in certain ways. For most couples... The permanently insistent and persistent nature of the male libido is a challenge for many women. Barring disease, old age, or an affair, most men will keep following their wives around the house, begging for sex day after day, year after year, regardless of weather conditions. Neither rain, nor hail, nor sleet will act as a deterrent. Even Eskimo men insist on sex with outside temperatures at minus 45 degrees centigrade. The male libido is like a juggernaut that marches on relentlessly. Most healthy men retain robust testosterone levels into their 70s and even sometimes their 80s, so wives should not hold their breath that they will get any relief from their husband's sexual pursuits as he ages. Many husbands complain about the cruelty of severe sexual deprivation. While their wives may enjoy male attention and prefer to keep their husbands interested, but some might prefer it if their mate had an off button or at least a dimmer switch from time to time. Yet men have complex emotional needs just like women, and women are sexual beings just like men, but where they differ is that many women might prefer to have sex at the right times, not all the time. Now all couples are diverse and there are certainly individual differences, so there certainly are women who have higher sex drives than their partner's, And there are women that pursue men for sex. I had an awkward experience as a 20-year-old when a female friend invited me over for coffee. Everything was going well until she turned up with a tray of coffee uh, naked. Apparently, she misunderstood what I meant when I asked her for a skinny latte. I was looking for a caffeine fix, not a full service. Since I had a girlfriend at the time, I abandoned the coffee and the offered dessert and fled with my tail between my legs, so to speak. This was a complete contradiction to my usual life philosophy that you should never say no to a good cup of coffee. Now, as a simple concept, human survival depends on males and females being sexually attracted to each other. Otherwise, we wouldn't reproduce. Because children are bothersome, they get in the way of, ironically, having sex. There are biological reasons why men have higher sex drives than women. In stark contrast to the popular fashion that men and women have no biological differences, sex hormones play a big part in sexuality. That's why they're called sex hormones. Human sexual hormones have profound effects on behavior and attitude, and these differ between males and females. If you reduce a man's testosterone level to that of a normal female, he will become demurer and less interested in sex whereas young women with hormonal problems often present with period abnormalities and infertility, though not necessarily libido problems. Most women experience significant mood and behavioral changes associated with different stages of the menstrual cycle. Interestingly, I sometimes encounter wives who would like to keep their husbands demure, obedient, and sexually undemanding. So when I offer the males testosterone treatment, The wives vehemently opposed their husbands going on treatment. But low libido is much more sophisticated than hormones alone. In fact, treating women with testosterone does not necessarily improve their libidos and generally produces quite disappointing results in trials. Many men go totally crazy during a period of celibacy, but their testosterone levels remain quite stable. Women may also suffer during periods of celibacy, but they seem able to do it in silence with so much less complaining. Go figure. The longest period of celibacy I've borne witness to in medicine, barring Catholic priests, was about 50 years. An 80-year-old German fellow came to my office accompanied by his wife. He explained that his bone health had been deteriorating despite treatment for brittle bone disease, osteoporosis. His main concern, though, was the quality of his golf game. As part of the relevant medical history, I asked him about his libido. He replied that he had not had sex with his wife since age 30. Apparently, his sexual desire and function had been normal during his teenage years, but had disappeared suddenly and never returned. When I examined his testicles, they were the size of sesame seeds. His severely low testosterone was the cause of his osteoporosis. I proposed putting him on hormone supplementation. His wife was disturbed by the notion that testosterone could cause side effects. He had only one concern. Will I hit the golf ball further? When I replied, most probably yes. He jumped up and shouted, I want it now. I informed him that there was a possibility that his libido and sexual function might be restored, although there was no guarantee after such a long period of inaction. When he returned for follow-up, he did not look happy. I knew immediately that things must be bad, and it had to be his golf game. He informed me that while he was hitting the ball much further, he suffered an erection every time he got on the putting green, which put off his short game. He had developed a desire for his wife, but could not maintain an erection, except while putting. Naturally, I told him to take his wife to the golf course late at night. I didn't tell his wife that I was suspicious that he preferred golf to her. I adjusted his testosterone levels, and the couple came back excited that they had resumed a normal sex life after 50 years. Now, what about the gender stereotype that men have one-track minds? Occasionally, I hear women complaining that they don't understand men. What's to understand? Men generally have a single thought that preoccupies their minds, and that thought is not difficult to understand at all. Many wives live in the hope of educating husbands to focus on other matters like family welfare and, well, pretty much anything other than sex would be an improvement. It's a generalization, of course, but it's rather undeniable. Women are superior to men because their brains have faculties other than thinking about sex. Did you ever hear a woman proclaim during a sad moment or crisis, gee, I could use some good sex right now? Meanwhile, in that same moment, the man is most likely thinking, at least sex would cheer one of us up. So why do men have one-track minds? Firstly, I described in prior episodes that men tend to have a single-minded focus and hormones often direct their minds towards women and sex. But it's also about survival genetics. You could say that men want sex all the time because they are so caring. They care deeply about human survival. If we look at the mammalian model, With many species, the males want to aggressively spread their seed because survival benefits from genetic diversity. The best of the gene pool seeks dominance in breeding. It could be worse because male lions sometimes eat the young of other males so that they can procreate with a female. Fortunately, human males aren't quite this bad. In fact, I find other people's children downright unappetizing, or should I say unappealing. Now, with the mammalian model, you will often see the females standing around, feigning uninterest, looking sort of available while the men go into battle. While the male proves his genetic superiority in a contest of strength, determination, and athleticism, the female ultimately consents, still feigning a degree of uninterest to mate. Even amongst humans, since men have historically and genetically been providers and protectors, women are genetically programmed to be attracted to men who are stronger and more athletic for protection and wealthy and successful to be better providers. So we see in the world that successful sportsmen, wealthy tycoons, popular actors and singers often have beautiful younger female partners. Women are attracted to alpha males in many cases because they are the top of the gene pool. So we see in populist social media that women want emotionally sensitive guys, but in reality, it's not the emotionally sensitive guys that are getting the girls at high school and in young adulthood, but the top sportsmen, the impressive guys, the guys who talk the loudest, make the best jokes or the most confident. Of course, there is great diversity in female taste, but there are definite advantages to being an alpha male. The rest of us men, we're gonna get sand kicked in our eyes or worse. Of course, as marriage progresses, most women want partners that will display more emotional sensitivity to be good husbands and take care of the children, but there is a certain genetic programming that attracts some women to alpha males. Now, in mammalian species, while the young bucks are clashing antlers, fighting for females, the females are often standing around looking pretty. This is not about politics or sexism, but you can see it in the wild. So men are primarily attracted to looks. Historically, beautiful women have their pick of the best of the male gene pool. In fact, historically, being beautiful was a good way for women to escape poverty. So amongst humans, it's often the most beautiful, sexually attractive women who are the alpha females. Now, if you don't believe me, I'll give you this as an example. If you look at top male sportsmen, regardless of whether they're handsome or not, they tend to have beautiful female partners on their arm. Whereas in many cases, top female sportswomen, no matter how good they are, unless they're pretty, they often don't have the most handsome, best pick of the genetic male gene pool. Now, that's not me being judgmental. That's just human nature. I'm not endorsing it. Now, instinctively, you'll find that most little girls want to be pretty. This has nothing to do with socialization. It's actually a survival advantage. People can say what they like, but the beauty industry is one of the biggest in the world. You can judge what people value by where they invest their money. People spend zillions of dollars, time and energy on fashion, beauty treatments, dieting, plastic surgery. So they clearly care a lot about how they look. It's not about a value judgment. It's about simple human instinct. One interesting point here, is that many women regard themselves as experts on the attractiveness of other women. They say to their male partners, come on, stop staring, she's not that pretty. I don't know why you men find her so attractive. Meanwhile, men know which women look good to them. We've been doing this since an early age. Much of our attention is consumed in the specialized pursuit. We've invested time and energy into observation and we have great expertise about which women are attractive. There's no point challenging us. We have more experience and knowledge, and we care more. It's useless to tell a man he shouldn't find a beautiful woman that attractive. Since it's unacceptable to objectify women, let's call this natural attraction subjectifying them. Women are beautiful and often subjected to being admired. There are worse things, like not being admired. For men who do enjoy the sight of women, there are important distinctions to be made between admiration, objectification and being a complete creep. The guiding principle is that one should not ever make others feel harassed or uncomfortable. Men should value the qualities of women and physical attractiveness is one such quality. After all, attraction is natural, necessary, and often quite beneficial to both genders. But ogling is not acceptable. Guys, keep in mind that you will procure better social outcomes by addressing the owner of the breasts rather than the breasts themselves. Breasts are poor conversationalists at the best of times, and the human female attached to them may seek legal remedy if you don't fix the problem by removing your eyeballs from her cleavage and replacing them in their correct sockets. A few more thoughts on this fascinating subject. Interestingly, men seem to have far more congruence in their taste than vice versa. In most cases, you can take a beautiful lady and show her to any man in any country, and he will agree that she is gorgeous. In contrast, women possessing greater depths of psychological sophistication have much wider tastes than men. Some prefer tall, dark, and handsome, while others seek charisma, personality, wealth, power, regardless of physical looks. I find it interesting to hear women debating male looks. They have such strong views. He's not good-looking at all. I can't see what you see in him. They might say to a girlfriend. In this regard, men are superior. You'll seldom hear men joining such debate to argue. No, that guy is much better looking than that one. I apparently have appalling taste in male looks. I spent three months feeling sorry for one of my male interns for being unattractive, though he was such a nice guy. When my wife met him, she said, oh, your intern is so good looking. Now, what about gender stereotypes regarding masculinity and femininity? Masculinity and femininity are the typical gender stereotypes that have been given to us biologically to attract each other. It is a magic and it's something wonderful that there is nothing more powerfully aphrodisiac than a male being attracted to female femininity or vice versa. So as a man, I find breasts, legs, the way women move, overwhelmingly sexually attractive. Femininity is a powerful sexual allure because it is the tool that women are given to attract heterosexual men so that we breed and reproduce and maintain human survival. Recently, I went on vacation and what I saw somewhat fascinated me. There were all these bearded, slightly overweight, manly guys with really beautiful female partners. And as a male, I struggle to see what these women see in these men, but they're actually attracted to their masculinity. These are very masculine, manly men, and that is a market that attracts many women. So instead of calling this toxic masculinity, you might instead call it intoxicating masculinity. Now, I spoke in a prior episode about evidence that women form emotional connection with events and experiences more readily and powerfully than men. And this is the same when it comes to sex. Women on average connect more powerfully emotionally with sex. And this is one of the reasons why women have to be in the mood often to have sex. Men are often always in the mood, but women need to be in the mood. The emotions need to be right. Sometimes the relationship needs to be working. This can be a problem in the teenage years because boys are sexually mature but they haven't myelinated their frontal lobes properly yet. So they are emotionally and impulsively immature, but sexually ready. Hence, this is a time of risk for females because often female adolescents feel very emotionally hurt when they have sex with a male and the relationship doesn't work or they feel that they've been used for sex. Whereas not as a gender stereotype, but as a reality, Many teenage boys dream of being used for sex. Now, besides the stronger emotional connectiveness that women have with sex that drives them slightly differently sexually, there's also greater emotional vulnerability when it comes to sex. And that may be the chicken or the egg. So, are women more emotionally vulnerable when it comes to sex because they're more physically vulnerable? Or how do the two work together? Well, Women are at higher risk of falling pregnant, and especially in olden times without contraception, pregnancy came with it a great social stigma. It was also very challenging because you always know who the mother is, but you can't always identify who the father was. And women at any stage of history would have had much more difficulty making a living while pregnant or breastfeeding, notwithstanding the great challenges of bygone eras where there was such a social stigma attached with pregnancy out of wedlock. But that's not the only vulnerability when it comes to sex, because women are at higher risk of sexually transmitted diseases. They're also at much higher risk of sexual abuse. So you will find that the majority of sexual abusers, pedophiles, and rapists in the world are men. So women have a vulnerability. So perhaps the male adolescent approach to sex, which, as we've all witnessed, involves boys pursuing girls for sex on average without much sense of responsibility and the contrasting attitude of adolescent females who tend to be much more reticent and much more responsible is born of genuine physical and emotional vulnerability, whether that be from socialization or evolution. Now, in terms of other sexual stereotypes, which commonly occur, sexual cycles tend to be shorter in men than women. So research shows that men on average can reach climax in about two or three minutes, whereas most women take longer, often about nine or 10 minutes or even longer. So for men to satisfy women, there has to be a sense of care and concern for the female need because a man is capable of climaxing much quicker than his female partner in most cases. And accompanying this is that many women have a far higher need for intimacy than some male partners. So whereas men are often preoccupied with the sexual act itself, women often want to be held, they want to be kissed, and they want to be touched intimately in a patient and loving manner. Now, of course, this is completely uh, variable between different couples, but I'm just describing the common case. Now, on that note, as we draw this podcast to a close, I want to emphasize that what I've described during the last few podcasts is the typical gender stereotypes that are most common. These stereotypes don't prejudge people who are different. There is nothing wrong with being different. Humans are very diverse. And the most important thing is that society, sexual partners, and relationship partners care about everyone and try and satisfy their needs within reason, no matter how different or diverse people are. So the message that I want to promote in these podcasts, albeit that I'm most focused on heterosexual couples, is tolerance of diversity. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to another episode of Happy Healthy Ever After. Make sure you subscribe to the show in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And I'd love you to share this podcast with any friends, family, or colleagues who might be interested in the show. The content and opinions on these podcasts are my own and do not reflect the views of my employer or affiliates. Content is not intended as a substitute for professional health and relationship advice.